It is the year 983. All seems lost, thought Empress Theophanu. Her husband, Emperor Otto II of the Holy Roman Empire, was dead. She was now a widow. She was considered a foreign alien by many magnates of the Holy Roman Empire anyway, because of her Byzantine origins, because she still dressed like a Greek and not like a German until that day. Not only that, she herself was in Rome with her late husband, but her son and heir stayed far away in Aachen, west of Cologne. Yet her son was only three years old, and now he had been kidnapped by her greatest rival. Oh my! What looked like a truly hopeless situation was really one at first glance, but Theophanu was to show that she could save not only herself, but an entire dynasty, if not an entire empire. And Theophanu was to become the most powerful woman in Europe already at the age of 24. So, hello and welcome back to The History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne that is over 2,000 years old, but before it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as a kind of microcosm of European history. Here you can listen to the city grow, chronologically, from the Romans to our present time. What is this episode about? We know powerful women from the Middle Ages, Eleanor of Aquitaine, for example, or even a Hildegard of Bingen. In my opinion, however, Theophonu has not yet received the same attention as the two previous ladies mentioned. Yet no other woman was ever to become as powerful in the German Middle Ages as Theophonu, who found her adopted home here in Cologne. She was without doubt one of the most impressive women of the Middle Ages, and for a thousand years she has enjoyed her final resting place here in Cologne. Therefore, let's finally ensure justice. How had it come so far in the first place? How had a Byzantine princess like Theophanu ended up so far from home at the end of the 10th century? And how did she become the most powerful woman of her time? Theophanu's path as quasi-outcast Greek princess to the most powerful woman of her time is so admirable that I would like to tell you about it here, in detail. But don't worry, at the end we will of course return to Cologne and what influence she had on our city. How do we actually know so much about her? Well, it is because we are lucky once again. With Bishop Tietmar of Merseburg, we have a historian and contemporary witness who knew Theophanu personally and treated her in his chronicle, which he wrote down personally. For Theophanu's story, Therefore, we have to jump back a few years. These are the last years of Otto I's reign at the end of the 960s. Even the aged emperor, now more than 30 years on the throne, knows that he will not live forever. His son of the same name, Otto II, was already in his teens. He had received the titles of king and emperor during his father's lifetime, so quasi he was considered a co-regent. What the young heir only needed was a wife. 
The father, Otto I, therefore came up with the following idea. If he could arrange a marriage between his son and a daughter of the Byzantine emperor, he would kill two birds with one stone. Diplomatically, it would relax the strained relations between the two empires, each of which saw itself as heir to Rome and leader of the Christendom. Second, Otto's dynasty would gain unprecedented glory within the Holy Roman Empire and especially in comparison to other noble families, if he could claim to have family ties as far away as the imperial court in Constantinople. A Byzantine emperor's daughter was needed. In 967, both Otto's, sorry for the joke, I think it only makes sense in German, so let's continue. Both Otto's stayed in Italy so that the Byzantine princes did not have to travel any further than necessary. But for the first few years, they waited in vain for a Byzantine bride. Why? Well, twice the two Otto's had sent an envoy to the imperial court in Constantinople, but both times they had failed. But then something happened that brought movement into the matter. There was a change of rulers on the throne in Constantinople. In keeping with Roman tradition, the old emperor was assassinated and a new emperor immediately followed. This new emperor, named John I Zemiscus, wanted peace on his western border, more precisely in southern Italy, where the Byzantine Empire bordered Otto's Holy Roman Empire. For at the same time, the expanding Arabs were closing in on him on other fronts of his empire. And this new Byzantine emperor, named John was the uncle of the person around whom this episode revolves. And so we come to young Theophanu. She was waiting excitedly in her room in Constantinople in the Imperial Palace in the year 972. She was just 12 years old, and now she was to leave her homeland forever. She would never see it again. Theophanu had probably been born around the year 960 and grew up in a powerful noble Byzantine family. As the daughter of a great general, she grew up in luxury and prosperity in Constantinople. There she will certainly have attentively witnessed the power and intrigue games at the imperial court. And now she was to leave her family surroundings and be sent to cold and uncivilized Western Europe? This is madness, she must surely have thought to herself. She would set off for distant shores to a people she had previously considered barbarians. And all this only because Emperor John I didn't want to send a princess to Otto. For that was the real explosive force in this deal. Theophanu was not a Byzantine princess. She had not even been born into the imperial family. She was merely the emperor's niece by marriage. She was noble, no question, but not the Byzantine emperor's daughter that Otto had asked for his son of the same name. Theophanu knew what that meant. Should she be rejected by Otto, she would be condemned as a rejected bride to live as an eternal spinster in a convent far away from the shot. If she would still be accepted, then she, still a child, would have to marry an almost 18-year-old man, whose culture and customs she did not even know. Who, unlike her, could not even read and write, knew nothing about philosophy or science like she did. What great prospects, being locked away as a nun while still a child or marrying an adult, an uncultured man far from home. 
What Theophanel really thought in this situation in 972 is of course not known. The Middle Ages are not known for documenting the personal feelings of people, especially not of children or even girls. But perhaps Theophanu already thought at that moment that she had to use every chance she had to survive. Her later actions would be characterized by exactly this spirit. But of course Theophanu was not just anyone. Even as a 12-year-old girl, she already had a lot going for her. Through her mother from the powerful Phokas family, she was related to the recently assassinated emperor. Theophanu had been named after his wife, who, by the way, had contributed considerably to the death of her imperial husband. The Byzantine empress of the same name, Theophanu, had probably been the godfather of our Theophanu. Is that really called godfather when it's a woman? I have no idea, but let's just continue. Her father was a member of the Skleroi, one of the richest and most powerful noble families of the Byzantine Empire. And as I said, she was also related to the reigning emperor, since he had once married her aunt, meaning she was the niece by marriage of the current emperor. So Theophanum was not just anyone. As a high noblewoman, she had received a comprehensive education in philosophy, theology, political science, and of course she could speak, read, and write Latin and Greek. Even Emperor Otto I, the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, had only very modest reading skills. Growing up in the palaces of the Byzantine emperors in Constantinople, Theophanu had experienced a lot in her still young years and had quite an idea of what it took to play the Game of Thrones. And so perhaps at that moment in 972, Theophanu gathered all her strength when the door to her chamber opened and a delegation of Otto I of the Holy Roman Empire entered. Or, and this is of course also possible, she was scared to death of what might await her. To be rejected and banished to a monastery, or, you, you know, to have to marry a foreign ruffian. The leader of this delegation introduced himself as Archbishop Gero of Cologne. He was here to bring Theophanu to Rome on behalf of his emperor. Together, the delegation led by Archbishop Gero of Cologne sailed to Rome by ship. Theophanu was in tow. To at least keep up appearances, the Byzantine imperial court had given Theophanu expensive clothes, jewelry and of course a lot of treasures. Numerous advisors were also placed at her disposal. A Byzantine princess did not travel without her own entourage. Even on the long journey across the sea, Theophanu tried to learn as much as possible of the foreign language of her future husband, an early form of Low German. In the spring of 972, Theophanu entered the city of Rome with her half-Cologne, half-Byzantine entourage and was immediately received by both Ottos. Stupid German barbarians who could barely read and write or not, father and son realized soon that this Byzantine princess was not the one they had hoped for, especially since rumors traveled faster than a tour group by ship. But especially on the older Otto, Theophanu probably made a great impression. Not to extend this narrative further, Otto I decided to accept Theophanu as a bride for his son, although many advisors at the imperial court advised Otto to send Theophanu home again. 
And so the imperial wedding between Otto II and Theophanu was celebrated in St. Peter's in Rome in April 972. Only a few days before when I wrote the script for this episode was even the 1050th anniversary of this wedding. But unfortunately I completely missed it and therefore didn't post anything on social media about it. Theophanu will not have been really happy. She was only 12 years old, didn't know any of the people present here, let alone her groom. On the occasion of the wedding ceremony, Theophanu was also explicitly crowned as Empress, co-imperatrix in Latin in the contemporary sources. Her husband had already received the imperial dignity a few years earlier. Theophanu was also given rich possessions in the empire, so that she even had her own income. She was given possessions in Thuringia, the Rhineland and Italy. In the Rhineland, for example, she was given an estate in Bopat. A magnificent marriage certificate, probably the most beautiful of the entire early Middle Ages, has recorded all this. It can even be assumed that Theophanu herself contributed to the text of the marriage certificate in Latin. After all, she was educated and could read and write in that language. I will put a picture of this document on my homepage thehistoryofcologne.com and, of course, post it on social media soon. Thus, Theophanu was now at one stroke the richest woman in whole Europe. Nevertheless, many at the imperial court and in the empire continued to be strangers to this woman from the east. Above all, her appearance aroused excitement among some. Theophanu continued to dress according to the current Byzantine fashion. It was just fancier than what the ladies in medieval Germany wore. Some contemporaries tried to interpret her fashion taste as an expression of sin, an accusation that unfortunately still seems to haunt our time. But Theophanu also finds friends. With the Saxon Willigis, the chancellor at the court of Otto I, she soon forges a friendship that would last her entire life and perhaps would also save her own life later. As already teased in the last episode, this decision of Otto I to accept Theophanu nevertheless would change European history forever. For she was, whether really a princess or not, a Byzantine noblewoman with a degree of kinship to the imperial court in Constantinople. As a highly educated person, she was not only superior to the noble women of her time, but even to counts, dukes, bishops, and even the emperor. As said, Otto could only show modest reading skills, and honestly, Theophanu would do no less than save the empire from ruin. With the wedding ceremony behind us, it is slowly time to say farewell to Emperor Otto I or Emperor Otto the Great. The arranged marriage of son Otto II to Theophanu was one of his last great acts as a ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. A year later, in the year 973, Otto the Great died at the age of 60 after 37 years of it on the throne of the empire. Now his son Otto took over, who just went down in history, of course, as Otto II. At the time of his father's death, Otto II had already been co-king for more than 11 years and co-emperor for at least 5 years. 
unlike his imperial father, I will refrain here from a large description of his biography. That's unfair, I know, but first of all, the Holy Roman Empire, starting with Charles the Great, has existed for almost a thousand years. It really wouldn't be possible to cover every ruler of this empire biographically all the time. Secondly, this is still a podcast about Cologne and not about the ruling dynasties of the empire. Thirdly, I fit in well with the previous historians because Otto II is very often overlooked. There's a reason for this. His reign is, in short, unfortunate. In just 10 years, the second Otto should never be lucky. Not in foreign policy, not in domestic policy, not at all. His father, the great Otto, had left him such a powerful empire with so much money and military as there had never been in this field since the fall of Rome. But, as I said, Otto II simply had no luck in ruling. Feel free to take a look at his biography as a ruler yourself if that interests you. However, I would refrain from doing so here. But for Theophano, this time at her husband's side was extremely instructive. During these years, she got to know the business of government, which must have been so foreign to her at least at first. Here in Otto's empire, there was no central capital as in her homeland with Constantinople. Here, one traveled as a ruler himself to the respective places around to rule. Of course, the marriage with Otto was not a love match in the beginning, but apparently the two got along well, saw themselves as a unified community of fate. Otto II appreciated Theophanus' wisdom and knowledge. With the exception of her pregnancies, he took her with him on every journey. This is evidenced above all by the documents and records from that time in which Otto II praises his wife extraordinarily as, quote, as a dearly beloved co-empress, end quote, and a dowser with attributes such as, quote, dearest or joy-giving, end quote. It was not a matter, of course, for rulers at that time to mention their own wife so prominently in written documents. Parchment was expensive, and writing up the document was also extremely time-consuming. Every word had to be weighed up to see whether it would be worthwhile financially and in terms of the effort required to create it. But for Otto II, it probably was. The bearing of children was, of course, also actually a matter of duty and not an expression of love at that time. But in only ten years of marriage, Theophanu bore her husband five children, three daughters and the heir to the throne, Otto III. A fifth child had probably died early. Perhaps these children were also an expression of their common love? Who knows? Otto II was certainly not a bad ruler but he lacked precisely that ingredient that a ruler needs, then as now, luck, and that he did not have, because Otto II died unexpectedly of malaria in Italy in the year 983 at the age of only 28 years, when he tried to bring peace there. Theophanu had warned him beforehand not to do so. As a Byzantine, she was aware of the military strength of the Arabs that were invading southern Italy. But Otto II did not listen to his wife this time. 
crushingly defeated, although he led the largest army of the Holy Roman Empire to date into battle, he contracted the very malaria disease on the retreat from which he succumbed shortly thereafter. With his untimely death, we would have arrived at the event at the beginning of this episode. Theophanu, the young widow with only 23 years. Okay, Otto II, we have with some lines here, in German we would say, abgefrühstückt. Well, shortly summarized. But who continues here for us interesting remains or wonder is Theophanu. Most noble women of this time would probably have retreated to a monastery now and would have been well provided for there, but banished from the public life of imperial politics. Not so Theophanu. As much as the death of her husband certainly shook her, Theophanu's career was only really beginning to take off. The death of her husband puts Theophanu in a precarious position. She is virtually stranded in Italy, in Rome to be more precise. There, Otto II is buried in the Eternal City as the first and only emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Up until today, his grave is there in Rome, but I have no idea if you can visit it actually. At the same time, the news of Otto's previous defeat by the Arabs is on everyone's lips throughout Europe. Do not forget, Otto II had gone into battle with the largest army Central Europe had ever seen since the fall of Rome and he still lost. This was, of course, seen as a judgment from God. All the surrounding enemies of the empire were now attacking. Still Carolingian France finally saw the chance to reconquer the historical region of Lorraine that, you know, Henry I had conquered in 925, so many decades before. The pagan Slavs between the Elbe and the Oder rivers conquered under Otto the Great were now burning churches and killing the priests and returning to paganism. And Italy was already barely under imperial control anyway. The Holy Roman Empire was about to fall. And this is not an exaggeration. Without a central figure on top, it could have been effortlessly worn down on all sides during this period, leaving perhaps only a few fragmented duchies north of the Alps, which would then, once like the old Germanic tribes in Roman times, fight each other again from time to time. So Theophanu knew that she had to act quickly, for to make matters worse, her son and heir to the throne, and unfortunately it doesn't get any easier for us here, named Otto III, was far from Theophanu's grasp in the Rhineland. She and her now-deceased husband had only recently, a few weeks ago, sent the three-year-old boy there to be crowned co-king by the magnates of the empire to secure the dynasty of the Etonians in the long term. But now this came exactly at this time extremely unfavorably, for whoever had the heir to the throne, who was now even the holder of the throne, also ruled the empire. Now, of course, in the Middle Ages, there were no daily newspapers, no news agencies that could quickly send news around the globe. It would take several days for the news to reach Germany across the Alps that the emperor in Rome was dead. This was a good circumstance in that case, because 16 days later, 
at Christmas in Aachen. The already long-planned elevation of Otto III to co-king took place. Of course, where else but in the Palatine Chapel of Charles the Great, today's Aachen Cathedral. Since no one there knew that the empire was actually just without a ruler at this time, the coronation of Otto III as co-king was carried out, regardless of the recent circumstances. For it was not known that the emperor and father of little Otto had died. So if the scene was not bizarre enough, since little Otto is only three years old, just imagine having a small toddler and you put a big, uh, big crown on his head, now the messengers stormed in with great commotion into the Aachen Palatine Chapel and reported that the emperor had died in Rome. But by then the crown was already resting on the head of little Otto III. The boy had received it from Willigis, the longtime friend of Theophanu and Otto II. Willigis had in the meantime climbed the career ladder and had already been appointed as Archbishop of Mainz by Otto II in 975. Now Theophanu's friend held the most powerful ecclesiastical office within the Holy Roman Empire. So to make it clear, the coronation ceremony had already been successfully carried out. If you now think that most of the magnates present there thought, okay, this child can hardly be our leader, you are not wrong. Many thought, no, a child cannot handle all the problems and disasters that we are facing right now. And when the magnates arrived there, actually the coronation here had been only seen as a means of securing the power of the Ottonians for the next generation. Nobody here present had thought minutes before that Otto III would rule from now on and actually and officially. After all, his father had only been in his late 20s. But a child as a sole ruler of the Holy Roman Empire? That is not possible. But no one had the idea to dare a coup right here and now. Because Otto III, even if only three years old, had just been elected king and anointed by God's grace. From today's point of view, perhaps not quite comprehensible, but to want to depose the young king now, even if he had only been wearing the crown for a few minutes, would mean that one would turn against the divine order itself. No one at this moment wanted to dare this sacrilege. Who wants to burn in hell forever for something like that anyway? Nevertheless, there was an anonymous agreement at the coronation in Aachen. A three-year-old boy can hardly take over the official duties. He needed a guardian. But whom? Because almost all of Otto's relatives were dead. And so it was that it was the then Archbishop of Cologne named Varin who handed over the young Otto III to his closest male relative. Varin had taken the young king to Cologne and placed him under his protection until the question of guardianship was settled. This was then just decided a few weeks later by the Archbishop of Cologne in a fatal way. He insisted that, according to old Germanic law, not the mother, but the nearest male relative should get the custody over the young king. And this distant relative was, of all people, a man named. Henry the Quarrelsome. 
Henry the Quarrelsome had been the greatest domestic political rival of Theophanu and her late husband, Otto II. It was to him, to Henry of all people, that Warren, the Archbishop of Cologne, handed over the young king? Henry had constantly rebelled or caused strife so that he had received this flattering epithet. Quarrelsome. But not only that, I have not yet mentioned the fun fact par excellence about this affair. Until that day, when Henry the Quarrelsome gained the custody over young King Otto III, he had still been in prison, exactly because he had rebelled before again against the just-deceased emperor and father of now Emperor Otto III. From an outcast imprisoned in the dungeon to the regent of the Holy Roman Empire in just one day, wow, you have to manage that first. But that was horror for Theophanu. But that was the situation she was now in. Don't worry, I will abbreviate here now. I just want to present the initial situation in which Theophanu found herself at the end of the year 983. And just as amazing it is how quickly and thoroughly Theophanu faced all these threats and overcame them with flying colors. For when Otto II died in Rome in December 983, all his followers virtually took to their heels. Theophanu was as good as alone in a city that was known for rebellions against the imperial court when it showed weakness. And right now, there was a big weakness going on. In a cloak and dagger operation, Theophanu fled Rome with her remaining small entourage and rode to Pavia in northern Italy, 30 kilometers south of Milan. Here she met her mother-in-law Adelheid. Adelheid was the widow of the Otto the Great. Adelheid's opinion still carried great weight in the empire. For in the Etonian period, women's participation in the exercise of power was once again not considered a given, but no longer completely impossible, as it had been under the Carolingians. The relationship between the two ladies had been, shall we say, a complicated one. During her marriage to Otto II, Theophanu had managed to win her husband's favor, while at the same time pushing back her mother-in-law's political and personal influence on her son. They had never been open enemies, but rivals, at least. When Adelheid realized that her son Otto II listened only to Theophanu, the widow of Otto the Great had retreated to her possessions in northern Italy, quasi as a retirement residence. But now the dynasty itself was in danger. The son and grandson of the two ladies was in danger. So both ladies joined forces. Quickly, with the help of other advisors such as Gerbert of Aurillac, who would later even become Pope in Rome, both devised a plan to save the Etonian dynasty and the Holy Roman Empire itself. Priority number one was of course obvious. Theophanu had to get her now royal son Otto III back under her control. As long as Henry the Quarrelsome had guardianship over him, he was de facto the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, on paper. For resistance to Henry's regency was stirring, especially in Lotharingia or Lorraine. For the magnates in Lorraine had heard that Henry was planning to sell or to hand over Lorraine to Lothar I, the king of France, one of the last Carolingians on that throne. 
No father first, once the little boy under Archbishop Bruno's guardianship, was now a grown man, and as a prize for France, recognizing Henry the Quarrelsome's rule, his regency, he demanded from him Lorraine. But rather quickly, Henry himself messed this whole project up, which would certainly have meant the end of the empire in the medium term, if it had been successfully executed. At a planned summit, meeting between Henry the Quarrelsome and the French king, Henry simply did not come. After all, one could have at least written a short email a la With regret, I cannot attend the scheduled meeting in Breisach. Sorry? But no, he didn't. Thus, King Lothar I looked a proper Charlie when he found at the meeting not Henry, but a Swabian army led by Duke Conrad I, who, because he still owed his office to Otto II, was loyal to Theophano and Adelheid. The Swabians beat the unprepared French army, and Lothar fled back to France. So salty and angry was Lothar in response that the French king now sided with Theophanu and Adelheid, although one of their partisans had just given him a defeat. It may come as a surprise that Lothar thus put his claim to the west of the Holy Roman Empire on the back burner for the time being, but personal honor was something that weighed even higher in the Middle Ages than it does today. Lothar had been humiliated by Henry the Quarrelsome, and his honor had been violated because Henry had not appeared at the joint meeting. To leave this unanswered was far more dangerous for a king's rule than any lost battle. Dead soldiers could be replaced. Lost honor, however, could not. The nobles of Lorraine naturally sided with the two royal ladies as well, and the city of Cologne was there, of course, with them. A big plus for Theophanu and Adelheid to regain power domestically. All this set in motion a domino effect that went more and more against Henry the Quarrelsome. Henry had no real claim to the throne. Only his guardianship of Otto III, the son of Theophanu, gave him the role of a regent. But this begins, as said, to crumble strongly. Under the protection of Willigis, Theophanu's longtime friend, who, as mentioned before, also held the office of the powerful Archbishopric of Mainz since the year 975, Theophanu and Adelheid traveled across the Alps and returned safely to Germany. With the powerful Archbishop at their side, to whom many listened, but who was also quite pragmatically an enormously wealthy and militarily strong imperial prince, the further domino stones fall. Willigis cleverly used his political network and gathered more allies for Theophanu. When Henry notices this, he tries to gather as many supporters as he can as quickly as possible. At first he manages to do this, especially in places where Theophanu is disliked because of her foreign origins. But Henry went too far at one point. The fact that he has guardianship over Otto III, according to Germanic law, makes sense to the magnates of the empire at that time. But at an assembly in the town of Quedlinburg in 984, he wants to have himself crowned king. However, none of the assembled nobles sees this. Otto III was an anointed king, whether a small child or not. No man on earth could take that away from him. With this series for power, 
Henry lost many of his supporters. I have already told you, the bishops and especially archbishops of the Middle Ages, but also far into modern times, act as princes of the empire. And so it is not surprising that Archbishop Willigus of Mainz fights with an army and again and again comes into little skirmishes against the suppose of Henry the Quarrelsome and inflicts sensitive defeats on them. When Henry the Quarrelsome then meets with rather restrained approval in both the Duchess of Saxony and Bavaria in his search for further allies, he realizes that the game is up. In the summer of 984, half a year after the death of her husband, Theophanu was able to embrace her little son again. Theophanu and Henry struck a pragmatic deal that was face-saving for both of them. Henry submits, in the truest sense of the word. Clad in simple clothing, he laid down on the floor in front of Theophanu, stomach and face down. More submission cannot be demonstrated. The ceremony was of course arranged and was well known especially from the time of Otto the Great. After this gesture, the ruler, or rather in this case the ruler wrists, should show her leniency. And this is what Theophano did. In return, Henry was allowed to become Duke of Bavaria again. And lo and behold, the great rival Henry the Quarrelsome would remain a faithful and loyal vassal from then on. Even on his deathbed, he had told his son that he should never rebel against the Tonian rule. Well, Henry must know that this is not always the best choice, I guess. A real masterstroke by the Greek young lady. For as logical as it seems to us that Theophanu, as the mother of Otto III, would have the right to preside over her son as a guardian until he came of age, it was not at all the spirit of the times. At that time, the old Germanic law was still valid that only the nearest male relative could be a guardian. But this act by Theophanu set a precedent that called the traditional law into question. And so the deal went down in Quedlinburg, in what is now a town in Saxony-Anhalt, then the heartland of the Etonians. Incidentally, a beautiful city that has retained its medieval charm to this day. Really beautiful there. I was there once with my university course like 10 years ago. The meeting in Quedlinburg was a great achievement by Theophanu and her allies. Domestically, the dynasty into which Theophanu had married was thus saved. After this coup, no one in the empire questioned her power anymore. At the age of 24, Theophanu was the most powerful woman in Europe. What arise from a Byzantine noblewoman sent away from Constantinople while still being a child, who was only sold off for political deals, and now she took over the legacy of Otto the Great in a direct line. To the public out there, please give this woman some respect. If you're listening to this podcast on the subway, in a bus, in a car, on the while hanging up your clothes from the washing machine, I don't care. Go to the nearest person to you and tell her about Theophanu's life. But of course, Otto III, now four years old, was still much too young to rule alone. 
So a body of bishops, including Willigis, of course, and the two ladies, Theophanu and Adelheid, took over the affairs of government until the young king was old enough. Eleven years now began in which the Holy Roman Empire was ruled by two women. Adelheid concentrated on Italy, Theophanu ruled everything north of the Alps and thus the much, much larger part of the Holy Roman Empire. Theophanu contained the Slavic uprising that had started after her husband's defeat against the Arabs by seeking an alliance with the Poles under their leader Mieszko. Mieszko's son would then become the first king of Poland. With this alliance, Theophanu clearly contributed to the formation of the state and the ethnogenesis of a Polish identity. At the same time, Theophanu was the grandmother of the Polish Queen Rysietza. If I pronounce it right, I have no idea. Through the later marriage with the Polish king, the young Polish kingdom also became part of the Christianized West in Europe. In Italy, Adelheid quickly ensured peace and order as well, and Ottonian power there was restored. The papacy also came back under Ottonian control. With Pope John XV, a pope had come to Peter's chair through the local Roman nobility, but the latter cleverly managed to convey that he pleased both the local Roman nobility, who insisted on independence, but also the imperial interests of Theophanu and Adelheid. During a trip to Rome on 7th December 989, Theophanu prayed at the tomb of her husband in Rome, incidentally the only holy Roman emperor actually buried in Rome, and at the same time arranged the coronation of her son Otto III as Roman Emperor by the Pope. When she signed documents there in Italy, she signed her name in the masculine form, as Roman Emperors once did, as, quote, Theophanus Imperator Augustus, end quote. Crossing gender boundaries in the Middle Ages? Only someone who is truly powerful can do this. In the immediate vicinity of Cologne, France continued to pose a powerful threat. The alliance between the French King Lothar of the Carolingian dynasty and Theophanu had just been an alliance of convenience against Henry the Quarrelsome. Henry, however, was again since 984 an ally of Theophanu as reinstated Duke of Bavaria. Thus, this alliance was over. Lothar again strove for a conquest of the reign. And here Theophanu skillfully used diplomacy to stop it permanently for a long time. She simply supported the French Duke Hugo Capet in his quest to become king of all France. From then on, both French dynasties for several years, the Capetians and the Carolingians, engaged in an eternal power struggle. This eliminated France as an external threat. King Lothar I finally died in 986 and his son Louis V died childless a year later in a hunting accident. And thus, not without Theophanu's small share, the Carolingians, who had ruled here since the year 751, were now also extinct in France and left the stage of history. In regional parts they still existed. But yes, over 200 years of Carolingian rule over Europe were now over. Thus, the Carolingian West Frankish Empire finally became the medieval France as we know it. 
There's a German children's musical which is called Der Kleine Tag, translated The Little Day, and was written by the writer Wolfram Eike and set to music by Rolf Zukowski. There, far away from the earth, behind the stars, live the days. The days spend their existence there as being made of light. Each day is only allowed to travel to earth once. Soon it is the turn of the musical namesake, the little day. The little day doesn't want his day to go down to earth to do anything wrong. The pressure on him is enormous. Behind the stars, all the days talk about each other and what they achieved during their special day on earth. There is the day when man discovered fire for himself, the day when a long war began, or another day when this long war was over, or even the day when the zipper was invented. But when the little day is allowed to travel to earth on an April the 23rd, he does something completely different. Nothing big. Earth-shattering happens. No wars, no inventions, no discoveries. He sees himself rather as an observer and helps only a little bit if it is absolutely necessary. For example, he asks the sun to shine more so that the people are happier on his day. He observes how people find each other again after a long time or settle disputes in private. When he returns home in the evening to the other days behind the stars, the little day is only laughed at and mocked, because he would be a boring day, they say. They tell him he had wasted his chance. A year passes until exactly one year has passed. With astonishment, the days behind the stars learn that on that day, people all over the world would have celebrated and danced joyfully. For on that day a year ago, nothing terrible had happened. No wars, disasters, murders or other bad acts among or between people. It would have been the most peaceful day in the history of mankind. And from then on, the little day knew that he was considered an outstanding and special day after all. Why did I put all these lines from a children's musical in here in a biographical sequence of a lady from the early Middle Ages. Well, domestic politics during Theophanus' reign can almost be compared like this. We too often measure the excitement and entertainment value of history against eventful things, and bad things especially, like wars, conflicts and other disputes. I often catch myself doing this too. The louder it bangs, the more interesting often the history is of mankind. But we must not forget here, all these conflicts here in this podcast I talk about, which all these rulers and those who wanted to be carried out, whether the Romans did it, Germanic princes or medieval kings, bishops or emperors, it always meant an immense bloodletting for the people who were subject to them especially for the non-noble people of the time, that is virtually the almost 99% of all people, the years of Theophanu and Adelheid's reign were therefore good times, because no major uprisings took place during their regency. No internal wars, no civil wars, no famines, no epidemics, and no natural disasters are written down in the reports. It was quite, compared to other times, peaceful, just like the day when the little day was on earth. 
Pooh, if you're still listening, I love you very much. That's it for Theophanu as Empress, widow and regent of the Holy Roman Empire. Let's move on to what influence she had on Cologne. Until today. What significance did Theophanu have for Cologne? Well, I think it is fair to say that the empress and regent found her new adopted home here. Of course, Theophanu did not have a permanent residence. Like all rulers of the early Middle Ages, she was always traveling with her retinue to rule the great empire from the saddle. Once the official business had been completed locally, rulers rode off to the next region. Traveling was arduous at that time. It is often reported that Theophanu fell seriously ill during these journeys. The fact that she still managed to rule so successfully speaks for her. But Theophanu's visits to Cologne are so numerous that one can certainly assume that Cologne became her adopted home. At least seven longer stays of Theophanu are attested between the years 976 and 989. Especially from 985, she was in Cologne every year. Theophanu preferred to spend Christmas with her still minor son and the rest of the family in the already ancient city on the Rhine, which at that time, let's not forget, could already look back on 1000 years of history. The fact that Theophanu felt at home in Cologne certainly had several reasons. Cologne, even if it was a long time ago, had been a Roman city in which the ancient heritage lived on, at least a little bit. Especially in the Basilica and Church of St. Gerion, which dated from the 4th century and thus from late Roman times, she will certainly have felt at least distantly reminded of her homeland that she never saw again. In a realm where the houses were mostly only half-timbered. Perhaps Theophanu also knew that Emperor Constantine the Great had once spent a long time here himself in Cologne, precisely that Roman emperor who had moved the capital to Constantinople and thus laid the foundation stone for the later Byzantine Empire from which Theophanu came. The fact that contemporaries attributed the construction of the church St. Gerion to Constantine and, above all, to his Christian mother Helena may also have played a role. Helena is considered a saint both in the Catholic and the Orthodox Church. But strategic reasons were probably also important. Cologne was located in the west of the Holy Roman Empire. From here, one could easily observe the events in France, which continued to target the Rhineland. However, the last point that was probably decisive for Theophanu was the Hall Church of St. Pantaleon, built at the posthumous instigation of her uncle, Bruno. Bruno and Theophanu certainly never met. Archbishop Bruno died in 965, several years before Theophanu had even arrived in the Holy Roman Empire. During Theophanu's lifetime, the church was already finished. In 980, the church was consecrated by Archbishop Varin. With the patron saint of St. Pantaleon, the church was dedicated to a Greek martyr, who was especially venerated, no wonder, in the Byzantine Empire. Theophano bequeathed many gifts to the church. She even donated relics of St. Albinus for the church of that Benedictine abbey that her uncle Bruno had once founded here. 
But not only that, Theophanu also had herself immortalized here structurally. She had the crypt in which Bruno lies to this day renovated, as well as the apse of the church building. But she has left the clearest trace in the west work of the building. This mighty square extension to the west of the nave still dominates the entire building ensemble of St. Pantaleon today. I have already posted the church of St. Pantaleon several times on social media, so you should hardly have missed the mighty west work of the church with its double towers. Theophanu may have witnessed the completion of the Westwork during her lifetime. When celebrating Christmas here in Cologne, she would sit upstairs in the Westwork, and from here she was able to look down into the gallery, into the nave, and thus sat with her family clearly above all the other worshippers in that building. From Tietma of Merseburg, we also know that Theophanu came with a large retinue of Byzantine scholars, artists, and humanists in 972. This also had a lasting influence on art in Western Europe. Archbishop Gero had already been so fascinated by the artistry of the Byzantines during his visit that he, presumably, we're not quite sure whether he was personally responsible for this, had a cross made for Cologne Cathedral that brought about a turning point in the iconography of Western European Christianity. But because of the length of the episode, I would rather put that into the next episode. Traveling had often been hard on Theophanu. From the beginning, she had to struggle with health strains due to the travels she had to do, perhaps with long-term consequences. At 991, at the height of her power, she notices how she suddenly becomes weaker day by day. At that time, she stayed in Nijmegen on the Rhine. Loyal listeners of this podcast will surely know this city as the place where the Germanic Batavians came from, who started their rebellion here in 69 AD. Theophanu realized that this time it was not only a temporary illness that affected her, but that death was coming. She had her hair cut off and wore only modest clothing on her last days in order to be able to appear as a penitent before the gates of heaven. On 15th June 991, Theophanu died at the age of only 31. Her body was brought down the Rhine to Cologne by ship, in the church of St. Pantaleon, in one of the few places where she probably fell at home again, as she once did in Constantinople, she had herself buried according to her own wishes in her will. In the mighty westwork of St. Pantaleon, which she donated, Theophanu has found her rest for over a thousand years now, here in Cologne. Why not visit her when you are here in Cologne? Her sarcophagus is, how could it be otherwise, made of Greek marble into which she was reburied in 1962. Theophanu overcame two major obstacles of her time to come to power and to keep it. On the one hand, obviously, as a woman who was supposed to not have actually power in the world of the Middle Ages. And at the same time, she overcame the obstacle as being regarded as a foreigner. Also, Tietmar of Merseburg, 
judged in his chronicle, who was not really averse to her, quite in the spirits to keep it it's keeping it neutral of his time about Theophanu, quote, and really this is a quote, this is not my own opinion, by far not, quote, she was of the weak sex, but she was endowed with discipline and firmness and an excellent way of life, which is rare in Greece. So she preserved her son's rule with manly vigilance in constant kindness to the righteous, in fearful superiority to the rebellious. End quote. And I think it is these two things, being a woman and being regarded as a foreigner, that have led to the fact that she is, in my opinion, not receiving quite the attention she deserves to this day. Another possibility is perhaps that her son, Emperor Otto III, will also not have such a happy time as a ruler. Above all, he too will die very young. If Otto had lived longer than just to the young age of his early 20s and had managed to Im implement what he had learned from his smart mother in the long run, who knows, maybe, then the judgment about Theophanu would be different. But this is, of course, only speculation, and we do not want to lose ourselves in the counterfactual. Theophanu had always mastered the crossing of boundaries set for her by the traditions and customs of her time as a woman in order to reach the pinnacle of power. At the same time, she had also acted prudently enough not to overdo it, like, for example, Agrippina the Younger a thousand years before had done. Theophanu's clever and effective way of ruling was primarily to protect herself and her son. Through the success of these goals, however, she also held the empire itself together. At the same time, she immensely enriched the Holy Roman Empire, which was technologically and culturally backward compared to the Byzantine Empire, through impulses from her homeland in art, theology, science, fashion and architecture. It was this imposing biography of this woman that prompted my history-loving parents to have me baptized, especially here in the church of St. Pantaleon, where she found her last rest. Although my parents did not even live near the church. In historical science, her importance is well known, but in popular culture, unfortunately, not quite so yet. So I demand justice for Theophanu. And you can help me with that. All the great facts I've found about Theophanu were always in books where she is not the main character. She was always in books like, oh, here's a book about Otto III, Otto II, Otto I, or something like that. But there's, I haven't found the biography about Theophanu alone. Maybe the only thing I've found was some university papers where they compare Adelheid's and Theophanu's relationship. But a book that I can buy in a bookstore where it says, Here is the, here's the awesome life of Theophanu, I could not find. And thanks to the public library of Cologne that they still had books about her, where she is mentioned in. Of course, Theophanu, as an important personality of the city, is also depicted as a figure on the tower of the historic town hall of Cologne. There she is depicted dressed in Byzantine fashion. In the Cologne district of Kayak, a high school is named after her. 
in the Zollstock district, a small square bears her name. <sighs> Let's leave it for today. If you've listened this far to the longest episode ever done, thank you very much. When I started this podcast about two years ago, over two years ago, I knew right away that I was going to do an extra episode on Theophanu. It's nice to finally have her in our narrative. There would still be so much to tell about her. This was a very biographical episode, which rather at the end only saw the reference to the city of Cologne. I know, but I find Theophanu's story so exciting that where, if not with her, we can digress once from the rigid narrative of Cologne's city history. But if that was too much of a digression for you, you should know. I'll make up for it the next episode. It's actually just a number, but the year 1000 is within reach. But still, I think the year 1000 AD is a good occasion to take another look at the city. Well, really looking at it. Walking through it. So join us for the next episode when we explore the city of Cologne around the year 1000. So let's get to the support your favorite podcast about the history of Cologne part. I heard you should only do one call to action. So what I will say is right now, rate my podcast on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Please do it. It's just a second. Tap on it. Hundreds of you are listening to this. I don't want to brag, but really, I don't know who you are, but at least a few hundred are listening to every single episode and only 25 have rated this show on Spotify. Come on, please give me some love. It doesn't cost any money. Please do it. I love you. Thanks for listening. I hope we will hear us again pretty soon and auf Wiedersehen. Thank you.